Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever in the world you might be. I am Nicole BC, and you, you have know everything. everything. Hello there, Wally. <laughs> Which I am laughing. Our listeners don't know this. I would love to introduce you to Walea Eaglehawk, who has the coolest real name, I think, ever at all. We're going to talk a lot about Walea, Walea's experience, where Walea comes from, both figuratively and literally. As you know, I like to generally get to know all of my interviewees alongside you. Walea and I have actually had the pleasure of getting to know each other outside of this episode as well. So I would like to introduce writer, publisher, scholar, Walea, aka Wally. So I'm going to just play with her name this whole time. Y'all, y'all need to call her Walea or probably <laughs> Miss Eaglehawk oh, until please, no. you know, y'all are properly <laughs> acquainted. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm Walea, not that old, do you please. like people to refer to you as? <laughs> Your Highness. There um, we go. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, that's all I've got. So, Johannes Willia, Willia Johannes, uh, Willia Eaglehawk, Johannes. Yeah, I'm, yeah, any variation. Perfect. Queen. Queen could work. Yes. Okay, why not? Yeah. Empress. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Queen Walea, I often like to start with the origin story. Usually I let people choose, but I am fascinated by your origin story in terms of how you became a publisher. And before we like get really into it, firstly, you should know, I'm going to ask like 18 questions at once. So there's that I'm going to be taking (laughs) notes, there will be a pop quiz at the end. And to everybody listening, one of the reasons I was so keen to get Walea on to this episode is she is a publisher. And I know many of you are writing books would like to write a book and or are seeking a publisher. So we're going to get into all of that. Obviously, Walea is a fascinating character. She's an entrepreneur. She's a creative. She's an artist. We're going to talk about all of those things as well. But stick around because what we will hopefully unearth is how to get publishing, when to get publishing, the strategies for submission, and any kind of useful tips and tricks that Wally can um, share as, as an independent publisher and also as a published writer. So with that, uh, how the hell did you start a publishing company? Why did you start a publishing company? What like inspired that? Can you just, I don't know. I know this is a long story because I know most of it, I think. <laughs> okay. So I will try and be as succinct as I can with this story. Otherwise we could essentially start it, you know, back in the, I don't know, 1800s, I've always wanted to be a writer. And in 2019, I really kind of changed my life to allow myself to become a writer. I had um, a quite successful vegan deli that I was running full-time with my then partner. And I knew that if I wanted to write books, I would have to get out of the hospitality industry. (laughs) I couldn't, I couldn't do two things at the same time. I needed a lot more space and a lot of different experiences in order to become a published writer. So in 2019, I sold the business and I went and um, kind of just said yes to any opportunity that got me closer to becoming a published writer. That meant that by the middle of the year, I somehow found myself in a position where I was working on an academic book, an anthology, where there were many different authors and there were many different editors. So when it comes to academic publishing, it's quite common to have 
anthologies with multiple contributors. And instead of having like authors on the front cover of the book, you know, instead of it saying by Walia, it would say edited by Walia and someone and someone. Um, so they're called edited anthologies and it's kind of a, a bit of a to-do in academic publishing. So it was very strange that I went from obscurity to working on this book. I was kind of started off as a research assistant and then I discovered that I was really enjoying developing people's writing and coordinating all the writers. And so that's kind of how I learnt how to edit books um, on a very tight timeline with a very big academic publisher breathing down my neck. And that's when I got my first taste of what goes into making books behind the scenes. Because of course, growing up, I've read thousands upon thousands of books. Um, so I know what it's like to be a reader. <laughs> I did not know what it was like to be kind of like an editor and to see behind the curtain of publishing. So by the end of 2019, I was writing my first book called Idle Limerence. And I was teaching myself what on earth to do in terms of getting published. So what I had learned is that if you have a nonfiction book, you're meant to provide the publisher with an outline first before you actually go ahead and write the whole thing. So they want to know essentially the entire structure of the book, what each chapter is about, any kind of key references, any other key work that you're drawing upon. And just like I, in my proposal, I put together like, um, like a paragraph of overview of every chapter. And so then I took that to publishers and to editors and to agents saying, hey, this is who I am. Do you want to publish me? And, you know, I went through that process for quite a few weeks before I stopped because <laughs> I realized it was the absolute worst for my creative process. Um, I had this whole book ready to go and I had stopped. I had written one chapter as an example to show the publisher. And then I stopped and said, okay, well, I'm only going to finish writing this book once it gets signed, which was my dream. It was my absolute dream to be published by someone else because I also felt like that would give me legitimacy as a, as a writer and also give what I was writing about legitimacy as well. And people kept on saying no, or they wouldn't get back to me and they couldn't really understand what the book was about. And it wasn't until I had pitched to, for a publisher in Chicago, like an independent publisher. So I was doing a lot of research. It does take a lot of research to find different publishers. Of course, it's easy to find the biggest publishers in the world, like Penguin, HarperCollins, etc. Um, but it's harder to find the smaller ones who might be interested in unsolicited manuscripts. So I didn't have an agent that was shopping me around. I was just cold calling people essentially. So this woman from this Chicago-based publisher got back to me and she said, hey, I love your book. Like the writing is great. I love what you're proposing. But to be honest, I don't think I have the right experience to break this to an American audience. It's very, it's going to be very difficult to market. And that's why I can't accept it. And that feedback kind of really opened my eyes to what could potentially be the reason why I was getting rejected so often is because people didn't know where to place my book in the market because it was cross-genre. It was sociological. It was fiction. It was literary. I kind of meshed a whole lot of things together. And in publishing, it, if it can't be marketed, publishers don't necessarily see the, the benefit in it, of course, because it is um, a for-profit business. They need to make money. And if they think they wouldn't be able to easily market it to a kind of pre-made audience, they're not going to necessarily bite. Like it would have to be a book from, say, if I were already a really successful writer and then took a chance with something experimental, I think that would have been much easier. But because I was an unknown writer with no audience, no reach online, 
doing something really experimental and I was writing about a Korean group called BTS who were very famous at the time but in the West they weren't really acknowledged, which was part of the whole problem that I explored in the book. But then I experienced it in publishing as well where people said to me, oh, well, maybe you should just get published um, with an Asian studies like imprint of a publisher. Um, so they didn't really get, you know, what I was trying to do. So anyway, I got that feedback and I was like, great, thank you very much. I immediately stopped pitching and then I just started writing the book. Um, I finished writing the book within two months of that and realized, Hey, I don't think anyone's going to publish me. I don't actually want to wait. I want to publish this book and move on. Cause I have so many other books I want to do. I have so many other things that I want to do as well. Like I really want to work with other people on their books. And I explored self-publishing that didn't really excite me because I wanted to do more than that. Yeah. And then at that point it was around January 10, 2020. And on that day I started my publishing company. I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to take everything I see online about self-publishing and everything else I can find about traditional publishing. And I'm going to teach myself how to publish books and I'm going to publish my book. And then I'm going to find other cool books that kind of don't fit in to the publishing landscape. And I'm going to publish them as well. And that's how I got into publishing. Okay. I have to ask, what's the difference between self-publishing and starting a publishing company and publishing your book? <laughs> Not a whole lot. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's just the um, it's yeah, it's just the entity structure. So I um I registered a private company and then I set about kind of creating policies, procedures, workflows, etc. that supported more than just publishing my book. And I put together a team and I worked with specific people to bring everything to light. So like self-publishing, of course, people um, are very successful from self-publishing because it is the exact same as all other publishing. It just has kind of like a stigma attached to it. But most people self-publish these days for the same reasons that I shared. And also they make so much more money. Like yeah. they make like 90% of the profit as opposed to 10%. And the only thing different really is that it's called something different and the intention behind it is different. So self-publishers will only be publishing their own work, whereas publishing company uh, wants to publish the work of other people. So yeah, there's actually not a lot different. Of course, when you get like in the big scheme of things, like if you look at the major publishers in the world, of course, it's the major corporations. So they're structured very differently to a single person doing things on their computer from home. But in essence, it is the exact same. Okay, cool. Thank you for that honesty and transparency as well. I mean, I, like as soon as you said they make so much more money, obviously I'm going to think of the analogy to musicians and putting out your own record as opposed to going through a record label. And of course, people think that going through a record label means something legitimizes. I want to circle back to that as well. But the reality is, is they're, they're coming in as an investor. They're investing in your product. They're using their existing marketing channels to take your product to market in the way they do for every single product that they work with. Sometimes, sometimes they're actually taking you out of the market. So you're not in competition with their existing mm -hmm. products. That's a different story. But <laughs> like at the end of the day, they've invested money. They're going to want their money back. And so unless you are successful, unless they can successfully market and sell you, then like, you're just going to get a bill at the end of it, which they will then also leverage that debt to 
make sure that you fit into this cookie cutter template, which is oftentimes not in the best interests of the artist. So again, totally different story. I want to, I want to get back into the publishing stuff. I'm going to ask like a hundred million questions as I typically do, but I also kind of want to just take this moment to stay with part of the origin. Cause you mentioned, I always wanted to be a writer. And I think some people listening probably have an idea. You know, I think art can show up like this, the thing that wakes you up at night, this, this urge like with that comes with this sense of urgency to get it out there, to show people, to birth this desire into the world. And, and usually in some form of a, a tangible product, whether it's, it's your music into a, you know, a record with your writing, like how did you know you wanted to be a writer and how did that actually start showing up for you? Mm. Okay, well, back when I was about eight, I, I vividly recall writing my first story um, mm-hmm. and realizing that I could make anything happen. Like that was a conceptually, that was a pretty big, like, oh my gosh, moment for me. It was like, oh, you're telling me I can make these people do whatever I want. And at the same time, I realized that I could live life any way I wanted to through the characters on the page. So my passion at the start was definitely writing fiction. I remember my first character was called Chloe and I thought, oh, wow, that's such a cool name. You know, like here I am, my name is Walia. And I was like, whoa, Chloe, that sounds so Chloe, Chloe. So I I just remember like looking at that word over and over going like, whoa, I'm so cool. Um, And then like there was an evil character that was a lot like Voldemort because of course Harry Potter was massive in the, um, this would have been the very, very early 2000s when I was eight. Uh, I don't even know where it first started, but I was just a writer. And that's how everyone knew me as well, because I was always writing, Um, not like epically long things, but I was just making stuff up. And I also was very creative in how I spoke to people. And I was constantly like making up stories about myself that nobody ever knew I was making up. Um, (laughs) So I definitely experimented a lot with storytelling and I used it as a vehicle to experiment with my identity because I didn't have any other means to change who I was. I didn't have a lot of control over my life. Of course, I was a child. And even if, even if I went to my mum and said I wanted to do this, I wouldn't even have language to expl- explain or express what I wanted to do to change, but I could kind of explore these themes subconsciously through my writing. As I became a teenager, I used it to kind of make uh, bring some kind of relief from the tension I was feeling. I was grew up in a regional backhole town in Western Australia. And if you look on the map and if you do some research, which I did, and which my, fa- my dad is from Texas, right? So my, um, his father pulled out a ruler, did some calculations and discovered that when my dad moved to Bunbury, Western Australia, he actually moved to the furthest inhabitable point inhabited point away on the earth from Texas possible. Um, so it's a very like, it's, it's far away from everything. It's one of the more isolated parts of the world, which is very strange to think about. And culturally it was, yeah, it was a living hell for me. So I would write about running away with musicians in bands. Um, so my, my teen angst was like, it kind of went into stories and that's kind of what saved me and helped me dream and helped me realize that maybe I can have like a different life to the one that I'm having now. And definitely in my late teens, early twenties, when I closed my eyes, I would picture myself writing and it became the thing that I could physically feel myself. Like I, I had this strong urge to pick up a pen and write on paper. Like I just needed to physically write something. So it kind of grew over time. And I always saw myself as a writer, but I never actually properly pursued writing. 
And then one day I just woke up at the start of 2019. I was like, you know what? I have to do it right now. Like I'm not getting any younger. I'm now 26. I thought I would be a published writer by the time I was 20. So um, I probably should write a book so that so that I can get published. Um, I realized that it wasn't just going to happen spontaneously to me. You know, you hear some stories about writers where they're like, oh, I was just minding my own business. And then I wrote one of the best novels of all time that I realized that wasn't going to be my story. It just took me like 26 years to figure that out. I had to be much more purposeful and intentional. And then I had to go and really teach myself how to write and how to get where I wanted to be. It wasn't just going to happen. I wasn't going to have a glow up montage and then have a great book at the end of it. It was going to be a lot more hard work than I originally anticipated. This is some like insider intel, but do you think that your imagination and the way that you used writing to kind of transform your experience informed Ida Limerence because that's about the parasocial relationship. Mm, and yeah. Okay, cool. Tell, yeah. I mean, and for <laughs> the listeners that might not know what parasocial relationship or Ida Limerence right. are, are even about, give them some mm. background. But okay, okay. I, like, All what right. are the things okay. that, like, oh. here's one of my 18 part questions. So apologies right. for that. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm not ready. sorry. But also, like, I think a lot of creatives, I think a lot of people hit a, hit a point in their lives, usually a lot older than you, where they think, I thought I would have made it by now, and I haven't. And instead of being like, so I guess I start today, like, and, I, and I, I then create this thing that I could be resentful for or could lament having not received yet, just like whatever the expectation was around it. So yeah, I kind of want to think of, I, I think it's interesting that knowing you and knowing what your first book was about, that you you probably spent a lot of time in that actual experience of imagination. I'll just use that very like generally for the parasocial relationship mm-hmm. and idle limerence. That that could have like broken your heart and kept you from ever taking a step towards defining yourself and identifying as a writer rather than just wanting to be a writer. And how did you kind of when you realize like I'm so old. I'm 26. <laughs> I, I could never. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know where I'm going with this. So I'll let you take it from there. Okay. Thank you so much for the 18 part question. I really appreciate yeah, it. Um, I just tried, I just tried not getting emotional there. Cause you're so right. You know, sometimes when people frame stuff and you're like, Oh, Oh crap. Like you're so right. Um, it could have, I think the key tension in writing Idol Limerence was that it could blow up in my face. Oh, firstly, it could just never happen. And that was one of the mm. biggest fears. I literally, I wonder where it is. It's not near me right now, but I used to keep a fear journal because I was that afraid of everything when I started writing that book that every day I just opened up the page and I just wrote down like what I'm afraid of because I was so paralyzed by fear that I, mm. I, it, I took 38 non-consecutive days to write the book. Um, and all the other days, so this was over a period of three or four months. Um, but who's counting? But all the, yeah, not me. I, I, I didn't have a spreadsheet. Six um, hours, 17 minutes and 48 seconds, but yeah, no big deal. I, I, I did not, I did not have a spreadsheet. Um, no, Definitely not. That's a, that's a habit I gave up after that book because that's ridiculous. But um, anyway, I was just paralyzed by fear. So it, the writing was fine, but everything in between was like torture. So, okay, first question. 
Imagination. Yeah. Um, Idol Limerence really, one of the main themes of the book is imagination and fantasy. Not that necessarily that's what's being discussed, but essentially Echo, the protagonist, is in a perpetual fantasy state while also living her day-to-day life. And also me as the writer, I imagined this whole book. Um, I think everyone writes differently, you know, in terms of how we conceptualize things. But I, I, I saw everything play out in my head like a movie, which is interesting because the book is mostly nonfiction. So how, how do, um, like my concepts and theories and ideas play out like a movie? Well, the way that I learn best is through living in relationship with other people and watching them learn and experience things. So I think this is also the reason why I wrote the book. Uh, with Echo, the protagonist, kind of learning about all of these key concepts that I wanted to share because that's how I learn. So when I was thinking about all of these big ideas that I wanted to share, I saw myself, who then became Echo, in many different scenarios that then taught her what I wanted to share with the audience. So that's what I saw in my head. So the whole thing was deeply, deeply deeply rooted in my own imagination. And then the whole book is about Echo's imagination and her fantasy states. So so they are kind of different entities. <laughs> it's not all just, yeah. So it's like Echo's imagination, Echo's fantasy, my imagination, my fantasy. And also like it's also a massive reflection of global consciousness as well. The, my biggest fear in writing the book was that I just wouldn't write it and that I would have to continue on life. Um, mm being someone who didn't write the book <laughs> and no one else would know, but I would know. And I w- I got to a point where I, in my head, I was like, if I don't write this book, I'm actually going to die because it, it, it was such a great pressure. I could feel it coming out of me, but then I was so afraid of what would happen if it did come out of me. What if it comes out and it doesn't make sense? What if it comes out and I don't get published? What if it comes out, I get published, and then the people that I'm writing about, uh, BTS, especially Nam June, who most of the book is about, what if he reads it and goes, oh, my gosh, she's a crazy psycho bitch um, and she's on the blacklist now. Please keep her away from me. Um, what if I publish it and everyone I know laughs at me? What if I publish it and it does really well but then I somehow get sued? Um, you know, like I went through every single scenario, good and bad, and all of that made me terrified to write and I had to get to a point where I sat down with myself (laughs) I do this thing where like if I'm feeling a lot of tension and I'm feeling yeah a lot of anxiety um, and getting really worked up because I I don't know if you can tell but I'm a very mentally driven person I have a lot of um, head chatter going on at all times I, I I talk out loud to myself so I sat down with myself and I was like okay well Leah are you afraid yes are you going to write the book anyway yes okay well that's that's all I need to know like yes it's true all of that could happen but is any of that going to stop you from writing the book right now no like and should it no so just write the book and then find out later you know that's that's the only way forward because it was either that or I was going to die like it was that serious um and I was that full of angst over it um I could see no other way forward like I, I just had to do it so imagination played a huge role fears were the the biggest emotion uh, that I experienced throughout the whole process. And then that really helped because that was a major theme of the book as well. So essentially everything I experienced in the process of writing the book then became part of the book, but maybe not in like a direct way. And it might not be completely obvious, but if you were to analyze it and to really feel into it, it would all be there. 
you were also building your publishing company while you were writing this book, right? Am I putting the timeline together correctly? Uh, no. So I wrote the book, then built the company. Thank goodness. Ah, okay. Okay, cool. What did your day-to-day routine look like when you decided I am now a writer and you declared yourself an artist? Do you consider yourself an artist? Uh, how did that shift when you decided to now focus on building out this publishing company, publishing other books? I know you also had some more personal projects in terms of anthologies that you were publishing. So you were probably more participative in those publications than you might be in some of the publications you're doing on behalf of other writers. And then like what shifted once you got the baby out, (laughs) once you established the publishing company, I'm sure you saw another shift and there's even more, but I'm going to stop there for the now. Oh man. Okay. Thinking back, um, my, my daily life, worst interviewer ever. Yeah, my short-term memory is trash. So this is really putting me under the pump at 8.25 in the morning. But here we go. Okay, I remember. I'm, I'm ready. I'm Here I am. Um, so to become a writer, well, as I said before, I sold my, my cafe. So suddenly I had a lot of time on my hands. And um, oh what I had to do, obviously, was get a job. <laughs> I had to make money. So I managed to land a job as an arts producer for a not-for-profit organization that was funded by the Queensland government to do arts programs across regional southeast Queensland. So that was really cool. So I wanted to make sure I had a job that kept me kind of like in creative fields. I didn't want to go like, you know, work at Macca's or like a retail job. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be around artists and creatives. Um, so I was Did doing that. Did you also kind then- of need that creative constraint like sometimes when people because I mean you just sold a business so like the the Mm -hmm. urgency to like make money may or may not have been there but I I find I know I personally the more I have going on the more I get done and when I have like all the time in the world sometimes I can find myself kind of flitting about not being very productive I don't know did you do you think consciously yeah Yeah, that's right you might have said like I need a little bit of structure in order to be able to yeah be structured. Oh, for sure. Also, because I had no idea what I was doing. So it wasn't just like that I had a great book idea and I needed to quit, like I needed to tell my business so I could go right, right away. Oh, I was actually working. Actually, no, I was working on a book at the time, but it wasn't like, yeah, I I didn't feel any great urgency with that. It's more like I need to have a time to find myself as a, as an artist essentially. Um, And to make that, that transition from being a hospitality business owner for many years into being an artist and have my whole life be the life of an artist. Cause before I was living like multiple different lives, it felt like. So yeah, day to day, I wasn't directly trying to write. I just let it all come to me. Not that it felt like that. I mean, it was much more painful than that. I was much more like, Oh, when am I ever going to write? Oh, I just want to write. Ugh. But, um, you know, it just had to come to me. And I got, because I w- was working in that position, I got to see a lot of different opportunities for writing. Not, not that there were a lot of opportunities for writers, but there was one in particular I saw come up that was an opportunity to apply for a regional young writers residency in Australia. Um, and I did apply for that and I went on writers residency for the first and only time. And so I found that I was able to participate in a lot more creative projects, which was really cool. And so every day it would be like, wake up between four and 5am because it was summertime. So very hot in Australia. Um, and I would sit at my desk, look out the window and write, Um, then I would stare off into space, lay in bed, write some more, come back to my desk, try and write some more, post some stuff to Instagram, 
uh, probably have an existential crisis, eat some food, and then I would be at the gym between 1 and 2 p.m. I would do two or three hours of training. I would come home, eat dinner, have another existential crisis, maybe write for 40 minutes in my attempt to write at night and then go to bed. So that's what my that's what my writing routine looked like. And then as I moved into publishing, so it was much more like every moment I could get, I was trying to learn something new. So, you know, I once again was waking up early, trying to figure out how to make a book, trying to get people to work with me, trying to find money because that's the other thing. I didn't have any money and I was trying to start a whole business. But yeah, it pretty much was the same thing. Just kind of hustle and do as much as I could, then go to the gym by about two o'clock in the afternoon and go home and have an existential crisis and go to sleep early. Um, So nothing really changed in that respect. I just kind of swapped out writing for book publishing. Okay, there you go. Uh, That's uh, Stephen Pressfield, who I think you know is one of my favorites, wrote The War of Art and the Artist's Journey. And I, I, I think existential crisis is a part of Every, every single time you pick up your medium <laughs> to create, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of part and parcel. And so the fact that people go back to that over and over again never ceases to amaze me and why it's one of my favorite <laughs> topics. I also like that things didn't really shift for you too much. It's kind of the same. I mean, it sounds pretty diligent or disciplined or consistent, if you ask me. Do you find mm-hmm. that that consistency supports your art? Yeah, for sure. And I think what's really interesting is that powerlifting taught me that consistency, um, yeah. which taught me huh. that um, you everything, you know, every week you get a program, right, and you follow it. And it's the same, to, to some degree, it's the same exercises every week and the weight goes up a very, a very small amount, if at all. All the reps go up slightly. But it's like you're literally changing like 1% or 2% a week. So it's not massive changes. It's like very small and consistent changes over about a 10 week block. So we do everything in 10 weeks. Really helped me understand that if I wanted to see change, it's going to take, you know, I've got to do something for 10 weeks first. And I need to do the same thing every time I sit down, even if it's rubbish, even if it feels like crap. Um, And then I just need to improve or add on or change about 1% or 2% a week. So it helped me a lot with mental discipline. And the only way for me to get that was to do something that I actually really wanted to do instead of being told what to do. You know, like I really had to feel like I was going to get something out of it and I really wanted to be mega strong. And then the the carryover for that was that I had that same mental discipline that I took to writing. And I even count the existential crisis as writing time. You know, like if if I sit down and go, okay, today is a writing day and then I stare at a wall, okay, that was my writing day. (laughs) You know, like it's, it's, it's all a part of the process. And 90% of my writing days have nothing to do with writing. It's actually more important that I am living than I am writing because I go out there, I'm like a sponge. I saw this in like a Will I Am interview on Diary of a CEO. He said like, he's like a sponge, you know, and I feel the same way. You just, you sit there, you you absorb everything. And then at some point you've got to excrete it. You've got to be wrung out. You've got to, whatever. You've got to write the book. You've got to do the thing. And that's kind of how I approach life and business and writing. I experience it all. And then at some point, it does, you know, this is really funny because earlier I said, oh, well, writing a book wasn't going to spontaneously happen for me. Well, I have managed over the past four years to get to a point where a lot of my process does feel like it is spontaneous. But that's because I've put a lot of support um, and structures and procedures, whatever, in place to support that spontaneity. So it feels spontaneous. It feels like, oh, now it's time to write the book. But that's because I've just spent four years 
training for it. And that's just the same as powerlifting. You only need to be strong on the day of the competition. You only need to be ready on the day of the competition. Every other day, you just show up. It, it doesn't matter. You just show up and you do the thing, even if you really suck at it, even if you're crying. And I, I definitely, towards the end of that competition <laughs> training, I was crying. And then on the day, that's when you're ready. You don't need to be ready any other time, any other day. When you step out there and you do the lift, you have to be ready. Nothing else matters. And the same goes for how I approach business, how I approach creativity, how I approach my life. It's like, just get through it all. Do the thing that you said you would do. And then when it is time, you'll be ready. So I love that analogy. (laughs) That was like a epiphany. I was going to make up a word, epiphonic. That's, nope. Uh, That was, that was, that was, you were dropping some knowledge bombs there, Wally. So thank you for that. So a lot of people, I mean, I think books, and actually I'd be curious what your, what your hot take on this is, because I get told you should write a book. But I, I struggle when everybody's doing something. I just have to do the other thing. And it's, it's mm-hmm. actually, I will cut off my nose to spite my face. And I'm very aware of that and working on it. But like, what do you think the value of writing a book is for the author? And that's a loaded question for sure. But everyone thinks they can write a book. And, and I think the thing with self-publishing is, yeah, you can totally you can, but everyone approaches it differently. So if you're sitting there um, and say, if we're taking UBZ as an example, you're going, okay, well, I don't really want to be like everyone else, but maybe I should write a book. How do I start? There are so many different ways to start. Firstly, you have to decide, is it going to be fiction or nonfiction, which really then dictates your next steps. If it's fiction, that is a really big and competitive realm. You will need to start writing and practice writing and keep practicing. Um, If you have like a killer idea, absolutely go for it. But I find that people who go, I want to start writing fiction who don't already have an idea or haven't already been writing, it's unlikely that they're going to be able to follow through on that. And of course, there's always exceptions to that rule. But it's kind of like saying, I've never sung or played an instrument a day in my life, but I really want to record an album. So this year I'm going to do it. Of course, if you're a genius Absolutely. You probably will be able to teach yourself, sit down and do it. Um, But if you're just doing it just because you think it's a cute little fun idea, it might not pan out the way you think. Same goes for writing. So I think what we're seeing is most people are writing nonfiction. They're writing about themselves, which is, of course, a story that we all know and Mm. theoretically can share. Um, But it just means that we're flooding the market with subpar stories that kind of just exist to give someone clout. So if you were wanting to write a nonfiction book, which is definitely what I specialize in and will find a lot easier to talk about in this context, I would suggest starting with an idea and starting to write it. Like literally people come to me all the time and they say, I have all these ideas. I'm like, great. Have you written anything down? And by that, I don't mean like don't write the whole book down, but have you literally sat down at your computer, pen and paper, typewriter, whatever you want to do and go, this is what the book is about. And this is what I want to explore. If you want to be a writer, you have to physically start writing. Don't leave any of these ideas in your head for too long. Literally start putting them on the on the page because you need to start training your brain into like how to write and preparing to write a book because it is a marathon. With this, so so you you said you mm-hmm. how many do you remember how many people you pitched Idle Limerence to before you decided to to start your own publishing mm-hmm. company? Maybe like maybe between twenty and forty. Okay. 
Um, sometimes you hear these stories of like hundreds of people, but yeah, uh, and that so takes, that takes you, balls. <laughs> yeah, like, each yeah. time where you going back to that, you're kind of you're. Did you have a pitch deck or was it like a one sheet? What's the kind of word for it? Right. So yeah, world? so what you do is they're called queries. So queries. Um, cool. yeah, so they're called queries. So you query someone. So everyone's okay. a bit different, and there's a lot of great resources online. But what I had was essentially like an email that I would send and in the body of the email, it would be more personalized for the person that I'm writing to. So there are a lot of websites where there are, there's one called Manuscript Wishlist and I recommend everyone, if you're trying to get published, go there. And essentially it's like a directory of uh, editors, agents who who, um, are looking or open for submissions and they'll say exactly what they're looking for. They're like, I want um, a young adult story about werewolves and kittens and cupcakes. (laughs) And you go, great, I have that book. What I'm reading right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm sure you are. Um, Yeah. (laughs) uh, So anyway, uh, thank you for that. Um, So then you go in the email, you go, oh, hello, person. Um, I saw that you're looking for this and I've seen that you've – worked on all these other book projects and I really I I love I love this book that you've worked on and I know about this you know like actually give it the personal touch Mm, because there is nothing worse than getting just like a oh yeah ever yeah yeah yeah, that's right don't don't be like here's my book read it like (laughs) be like no thank you don't want to um you are selling from the first moment that the email hits that person's inbox you know And so you have to come across like you know what's up, you've done your research, you really care, you are ready. What people I think don't understand is that you don't just submit the book and then it goes off and gets published. It is and it it can be a a process that lasts a few years. So these people who are receiving your book are trying to discern whether or not you can go the whole way. Do you respond to Mm, feedback? Do you know how to? Yeah, because listen, if they say, on the on the manuscript wish list, they they could say, please don't email me between nine to five. They could say, you know, for example, and then if you email them between nine to five, and then you say something like, oh, but I'm in Australia and you're in America and I didn't know, they're gonna say, well, actually, you didn't do your due diligence. You didn't even Google what's going on. Um, how are we going to do an entire book project together? if you can't actually mm. respond to what I've asked from you. I mean, like that's pretty extreme, but it's kind of like all of these little things that they tell you um, are little tests. Can, can you understand what I've asked of you? Can you adhere to it? Can you make your entire document in Times New Roman? Like just because I've asked. This all kind of speaks to the, the author's readiness and their ability to understand like very right. simple things. So anyway, in the email, you say that, be like, hey, this is who I am. This is what I've written my book about. You make it very brief, but very interesting. So sometimes people like really like go, do you want to be amazed? Here's my book, you know, like, and that's cool. You know, you have to be creative and you have to know your audience and who you're pitching to. And then typically what else you include in the attachments And sometimes they ask you to paste it into the body of the email as well. So be mindful of that. But there should be um, like a synopsis and an outline in one document. And also what I've come uh, become familiar with and what I ask for as well uh, when people submit to me is I want the like an author bio synopsis outline and then I want a competing title search. And that's not because necessarily I need to know what other titles are out there, but I want to know that the author knows 
if there's another book that's exactly like this. Because more often than not, um, people pitch books that already exist. And so if you're pitching a book that already exists, you need to tell me that you already know other books like it exist and also how yours is going to be different and why you. Like, why are you the one who's writing the next Harry Potter about a magical wizarding school? <laughs> like, why why should I publish this, you know? Like, and instead of going like, oh, I didn't know, because that's also saying that you're not ready. Uh, and I know that sounds really brutal. And, of course, you could have no, written the best book of all time, I, but, like, it's business. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask, like, is that what the synopsis mm-hmm. is about? Like, you differentiate your book, you explain your why, you tell the the publisher how it's different and then do you have to kind of like get and like this is the big aha like punchline like takeaway from the book um maybe not in the synopsis the synopsis should just be like the kind of like the overview or the synthesis of the whole book but okay, probably so in like straight up, it's like the like what you would read in the like the this almost what am I trying to say almost yeah, yeah the, okay. the blurb is almost almost yeah. but more okay. more more nuanced more in-depth um but I definitely think you should ex- do the pitch or like kind of all of that other information either like in the body of the email or provide like a cover letter or say like this is this is my unique, you know, just find a spot to put it yeah. in. Like if you want to go for it and they haven't directly requested it, just find a place to put it in, but it's not the synopsis. So, yeah, so we're going to go like info about the book and the author because we want to know like who, who are you, where are you from, do you have any direct, like if you're writing a book about the healing qualities of flowers, what, what are your qualifications? Like, why are you talking about this? What has been your experience? And you don't need to have, like, you don't need to be a professor or something, but it's like, you need to be able to say, I've been studying flowers since I was two years old. And when I was 10, I managed to heal myself from, you know, this flower, you know, whatever. You have to be able to say, like, why you're the expert on this. Um, so that's one document with all that info. And then typically what for, that's for a nonfiction book, by the way, if it's fiction, author bio, synopsis, and then you send the first chapter or first 50 pages or whatever is requested. Nonfiction show the outline and you technically should not have started writing it yet. Um, everyone's different, of course, but like typically the publisher will want to work on the outline before Ooh, okay. the writing begins, which is why you see the outline. So you go, oh, no, change that around. Oh, no, let's include this. Let's edit that. Fiction is totally different. So then if it's nonfiction, also um, typically I would include uh, an example, like a chapter example, so that they get an idea of the tone the like, oh, and everything else, what to expect. And then so that goes in a query. Everyone does it differently. So a query could be minimal information, like a really basic form of everything I've just said and then you wait to hear back from the editor and so if they say yep please send through more then you send if for example if it's fiction you send the entire manuscript or if it's non-fiction they could say please expand on this please send me more can you give me another chapter example unless they're literally asking for completed manuscripts which some people do don't send all of your work because they're not going to read it Right. Um, typically they get like, you know, you can imagine a few hundred of them I, a yeah, week. I can't imagine they'll just be like, yeah, Oh yeah. Okay. But you know, like if, if everyone in the world is like sending you book proposals, yeah. you're not going to want to read their entire manuscript. You'll be like, yes, no, yes, no, 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 no. And then if you're interested, then you want to read more. But once again, every publisher is different and you do have to read their guidelines. There's no one rule, but that's kind of a basic idea of what to expect. So, 
I'm going to switch gears just a little bit and kind of pull it, pull mm-hmm. it back up. Cause I think you, you provided a beautiful overview of how this process begins, but I mean, you at 40, 50 submissions decided, you know what, I'm going to start my own publishing company. Tell me a little bit about self-publishing versus working with a corporate publisher versus working with an independent publisher. Why, like the advantages and disadvantages of each. Right. Self-publishing, disadvantage, you potentially know nothing and you have to go learn and you have to fund everything yourself or do it all yourself. So very basic steps are that happen after a book has been written. Uh, It goes into an editing phase, which can be substantive slash developmental editing. Then um, copy editing, line editing, like there's many different levels of editing. Self-publishers typically could just just edit themselves or just pay for one of those stages. And they might not always get the best editor. You don't know. If you're not in the industry, if you don't know what you're looking for, you don't know what to you know, what you're getting essentially. And also then mm-hmm. um, that is really limited by budget. So once again, that's why a lot of people just edit it themselves or don't edit it at all. The next stage of the process then is going to something called typeset, which is where the Word document gets put through something called InDesign, uh, where everything is literally, and a typesetting is kind of referring to the old school way, you know, when they literally had to set the um the little, little fonts blocks. on yeah. the page. Yeah, the little blocks yeah, to be printed. But, like, but it's the same thing. It gets set mm. to uh, a page and put in spreads and everything. Yeah, it like, literally gets set. Whereas Word document things can shift around and it's hella dodge, whatever. It literally gets set on the page and it becomes like this is exactly how it's going to be printed. And at that point, even then, like the editing is still going on potentially. For some people, then, of course, we've got book cover design, marketing, distribution, etc., so on. So self-publishers could do all of that themselves and there are many ways that can be done. Um, Amazon has all the tools now to do it. So you can self-publish through Amazon KDP um, and it's all free, which is, of course, why people self-publish. So the way that Amazon then makes their money is that on every book sold, they you upload your files and they will print and distribute it and they like and, and sell it as well on their platform. So it's great because Amazon sells, what, like 50% of the books in the world or more at this point. So they've got a massive share of the market. So everyone wants to be on there essentially. And so for someone self-publishing, of course, the appeal is you could put $0 in, start selling tomorrow and make potentially 90% profit. You get to set your own prices. Amazon takes, uh, depending, quite a lot of money from that um, for printing and shipping. And then you get the money and you move on with your life. Traditional publishing, obviously the, the publisher can often, uh, it's, it's changing, but typically pays an advance on royalty. Royalty across the board is 10%. If you're getting more, it's typically because you're an excellent negotiator. <laughs> and, and if you're working like with a major, major publisher, it potentially will only happen in like the second print run where if your book is already sold out, then you can go, hey, I want, I want 12%. I want 13% this time. Right. Um, so I'm cool. guessing, That's you know, JK, JK Rowling definitely would have negotiated up, you know, when Harry Potter was going off, depending on what the contract said, I'm sure she was like, yo, what, I, I think I need more than 10% right now. But for most people, 10%. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's fair, but that's that's what you're going to get, especially with a big publisher, because they are assuming all of the risk. And then if you are getting an advance on royalty, 
that's a really good deal because that is a major risk for the publisher. That could be like two grand, it could be twenty grand, it could be two hundred thousand dollars. But that What's is all the changing because of like a first time mm. author, you know, whether it's JK Rowling or not, getting mm. a so publishing deal you, with an advance. If you've written something really great and you've got an amazing agent, yeah. So like there's a whole, something that I'm not particularly familiar with because I am in the independent side of things, but there's a whole marketplace where you go and bid on manuscripts. Um, Mm. And so, you know, the the best of the best manuscripts go there and it's a whole auction house. And you, if you want someone to come to you, you will offer them more money. So, so. How do they get determined if they're the best of the best? that's what that's the job of the agent to be like mine is the vet you know and also like if someone for example is like um, oh so the agent takes manuscripts they're representing to this quote-unquote auction and then the publishing houses bid on it gotcha yeah yeah okay so 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 it would be safe to assume these writers already have a large following and or already have a lot of work a portfolio of work which is why they have yeah, potentially, yes. okay. yeah, yeah cool 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 yeah that's right uh, or they've or they're just they got really fucking lucky honestly because it's very like it's not unlikely like that but it, it's very difficult to get so the same thing like editor or agent you can query them both depending who's looking for so those are your two so you either go directly to an editor at a publisher or you go to an agent who then represents you but then they take a percentage mm. as well okay so it's, it's, let's just say it's going to be unlikely that you're going to get an advance unless you've got like mm. 10 million followers on Instagram or something. But also at that point, if you had like heaps of followers on Instagram, I suggest just self-publishing and taking all the profit. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so it, indie publishing is the same as traditional publishing, just smaller budgets, um, less kind of corporate oversight, can take more risks, not affiliated with like the major publishers in the world who are kind of monopolizing the industry because the other thing you think you think you're dealing with an indie publisher but please have a look at who their parent company is because all of the major publishers in the world have a lot of and I'm sure it's the same in the music industry have a lot of different imprints um Mm -hmm. same as labels you know that are like they have really cool edgy names but they're just they're just all they're all part of the same chain like it's the same company and um the reason why that can be negative is that we need diversity in publishing in terms of who's publishing what in terms of like companies in terms of opinions in terms of financial backing like we don't just want it to be penguin random house publishing all the world's books because who who controls penguin random house and what what are their viewpoints and who are they interested in signing and are they just concerned about making money Mm. um and when they're making like when you see how much money they're making you can understand why they will want to keep making that amount of money and that of course will mean that they're picking particular types of people to publish and Mm -hmm. essentially what we what starts to happen is that we're only publishing the books we know will make a lot of money or we think will make a lot of money which gets very far away from what I feel the essence of publishing is, which is to, for, for me and revolutionaries and um, the way I see the world, I want to publish books that are sharing new ideas, that are questioning everything, that are pushing boundaries, that are experimental, that do want to change the world. And unfortunately, you cannot change the world when you are signed. I mean, I'm talking very blanket terms here, but when you are signed to a major company, 
that's not potentially how you change the world. Unless you somehow manage to go, fuck it, let's burn it all down. If you are getting like a $200,000 advance, it's safe to say that you're not going to be pushing all the buttons that need to be pushed. Even if you are like writing the edgiest book of all time, is it really? Like if, and I know that sounds really, potentially really rough, but like if Penguin Random House are like, yeah, you're so cool. This is so punk. Here's $200,000. Like, is it really punk? Um, is it really pushing boundaries or is it just making people feel like it's subversive while you're kind of like reinforcing the status quo, which is that these massive publishers get to dictate the entire publishing landscape um, and they get to dictate how much money authors get paid, how much attention certain authors get paid, what kind of ethnicity gets published most, how many men mm. get published more than women, you know, like this stuff. And, I'm, and mm. I know that that, that they are really big statements and that is not the case across even within Penguin, for example, if I'm going to say, I shouldn't say Penguin so much, but, you know, it's just the first that comes to mind. Of course, there's pockets of resistance. There are going to be really good books. Of course, you're going to enjoy reading them, but we need variety in the publishing landscape. And that's where independent publishers like my company, Revolutionaries, and many others come in who are more interested in grassroots, community development-based publishing models and about finding the weird things in the world that don't make complete sense, that can't really be marketed, uh, but need to be heard and I think that's how we change the world, right? By supporting creatives who are doing things that aren't mainstream, that aren't generic, that can't really easily be marketed. Uh, we need to give a platform for all those voices and experiences. And we can't do that if we're all Penguin Random House, unfortunately. Preach. Though they have, I well, mean, they have the resources for it. So please share resources, Penguin. But yeah, stay away as well. <laughs> Uh, okay. So thank you again for, for giving us this beautiful segue. Cause I hadn't talked about revolutionaries yet. Revolt HQ. Did I get that right? Um, yeah, so tell us, and then you've got four imprints under revolutionaries, right? Right. Is that how it plays out? So tell us yeah. about revolutionaries. I mean, the mm -hmm. name sounds pretty dang obvious now, but maybe about your imprints. If someone wanted, like, are you soliciting work right now? Mm -hmm. What does mm -hmm. your query yeah. criterion look like? You know, all the fun okay, things. Okay, great. Oh, I'm always soliciting. Um, anyway, there you go. so Rev revolutionaries. <laughs> That's the <laughs> imprints. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I'll get to that one last. <laughs> it's the affordable option, let's be real. Okay, so Revolutionaries. I The idea behind, so Revolutionaries is the name of my company, but it's also the name mm -hmm. of the leading imprint. So essentially book imprints are like thematic or genre specific. So I have a, a few different ones just to kind of like, I don't know. I don't know. I just wanted imprints. Okay. I saw everyone else doing imprints and I'm like, Hey, I can do that too. You know, I'm literally just making stuff up as I go along. So when I started Welcome the company, I knew I wanted, and yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. How it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Um, so when I started the company, I knew I wanted it to be called revolutionaries and I wanted my main imprint to be called revolutionaries and for the imprint to publish works um, for the modern day revolutionary. And my work, uh, my initial work really talked quite a bit about what it means to be a modern day revolutionary and how I see a revolutionary. Of course, it's very timely, I guess, that we're talking about it considering the way of the world right now, because there's still mm. a lot of revolutionaries that are, it's, it's, it's a violent, it's a violent concept and term, right? Like a revolution typically has been bathed in the blood of other people. 
And um, especially in the West, we come to understand revolution as being inherently colonialist um, and imperialist. So, yes, that is still true, but that is not the revolution that I am necessarily referring to uh, or want to kind of claim as part of my business. What I'm looking at is um, the revolution of the self and how how each of us can be revolutionaries in a loving, nonviolent and just way. And I think that happens firstly through the arts, which is my main passion, and also through self-love, a love of others, a love of the environment, a love of other animals, and kind of the revolution starts within. Essentially, that's what I'm trying to say. So in order for us to truly change the world, we first must change ourselves. And I want to give people different perspectives, different tools, different experiences to aid them in that journey because everyone's revolution is unique to them. So that's what I wanted to achieve through revolutionaries. I want it to be cross-genre, not primarily nonfiction. So even though it can be cross-genre, all of the genres will include nonfiction and scholarly works either about something revolutionary or mm. someone revolutionary or like new ideas new perspectives right. it has to it just has to be new and edgy and weird and cool essentially so that's imprint number one imprint number two is called bulletproof because my the whole reason for writing my first book um the inspiration behind this company is that I did it all in response to a South Korean band called BTS and their name translates into bulletproof boy scouts so I wanted to create an imprint that focuses just on works about them, nonfiction work about them and their fandom who are called ARMY. And so all the books are by ARMY, about ARMY, about fandom, about BTS, and that's where the, the bulk of the anthologies that I have, almost all of them are, um, is where I do my deep fandom work, which I'm super passionate about and I'm super into. Then we also have Moonrise, which is literature to transport and inspire the modern day revolutionary. So it's not as it's not as serious as revolutionaries. Like it can be silly, lighthearted fun, but it still has to be experimental, weird, or coming from emerging writers. So everything fiction, poetry, literature, etc. So it's a bit it's a bit more broad, but I still want excellence, of course. Like who doesn't want excellence in their company? Um, the other imprint that I am looking to launch, it's still, it's still in the works, is called Everything Slow and it is the erotica imprint, um, which I'm really interested in as a genre I really want to get into. I know you're really into it. Ooh, yes, <laughs> but I am. Um, <laughs> we have I talked about know, this man. before. I'm into the PG yeah. version, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, there's many different versions of it, right? But I'm just really curious to know from a business perspective, like, so I know my company is called Revolutionaries and I'm interested in these ideas, but I'm also interested to learn how I can structure my business in a revolutionary way. Like, I'm not claiming to be like, really great, I'm just one person, right? But I'm really interested in like learning how I can revolutionize my industry or my own practice, all these different genres. Like, how can I push boundaries? How can I change things? So hopefully everything's slow in the terms of um, erotica publishing I can experiment and try new things yeah so those are the imprints and I am year-round open to submissions uh, if you go to the website revolutionaries.com.au and go to uh, submission guidelines you will see the guidelines send me a query email be like yo this is who I am 
talk to me like I'm a real person and like we're actually like friends because that that does go a long way and show me that you understand what I'm looking for and that you understand what I've already published and then show me what your book is about and speak with confidence speak like you know your shit like inside out back to front and um, speak like you're ready for anything and I'm pretty likely to take a chance on what you're offering because I am <laughs> I'm just down for anything, man. I know that sounds really loose. I am Australian, so that does make sense. But um, anyone who is super creative, super passionate, super driven, who can write well and has great ideas and is ready to go, I am ready to to back them. Yeah, I that's where I'm that. at right now. Well, you kind of answered this question, I think, just right now, but like, is that what you, when, if you were to say, if someone says, what do you do? What's your work? Mm. How would you answer uh, that question? That's a big one. I, but well, again, I think you yeah, just yeah. did it. <laughs> yeah. Like it, I, and that goes beyond publishing as well, right? Like if mm-hmm. you are someone who wants to do something, I will do it with you. <laughs> um, I, I am all about supporting ideas and creatives and processes and practices that could potentially change a community, change a person, change mm. the world. But pr- first and foremost, I am a, I'm a creative, right? Um, so it's a very strange feeling. Like my creative identity is very insular, but then my creative practice with everyone else is very community-based. So I kind of get the best of both worlds. But, yeah, so when people ask me what I do, it's like, well, I'm a writer. And then everything okay. else I have built is to support my own writing, but also my I am – I'm a scholar, right? I'm a sociologist. I observe the world and that's step one in my creative process. So I've created an entire structure of my life where if I'm not writing, I'm publishing. And through that publishing, it allows me to interact with people and observe the world and get more material for my writing, you know? So it's it's like a full kind of creative cycle loop that involves not only my own work but everyone else's work because I definitely see myself uh, inherently as an individual but like part of the collective um Mm. so I my work needs to be able to do both it needs to be able to address so if I can help someone publish their book it means I can help myself publish my book like I see it as the same thing right and conceptually I can't quite put it into words but that's that's kind of how I see it uh we're all part of the same community if people come into my life it's for a reason and I'm going to give them all my support that I can because that supports my process in turn. I love that so much. I think that's so beautiful. I uh, often ask people about the sort of the spiritual aspect to their work and their their art. But I think I also think you just answered that or you were just like picking up on the vibes, which mm. also answers it. We're, we're getting redundant at this point, which means we're probably <laughs> getting to the end. You shared the website for the publishing company, which is obviously mm-hmm. where people can find your writing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure they can purchase out of limerence there. And did you want to say anything? I didn't know if you wanted to do a bit of a reveal in terms of the next book, or we can just oh, save yeah. that for definitely another podcast for show. Uh, mm. But I didn't know if there was anything else you wanted to mention about that, where people can find you. Uh, you sure, talked about well, submitting manuscripts or queries. So mm-hmm. I, yeah, anything else? Uh, well, you can find me on Instagram at Walia Eaglehawk. Figure out the spelling yourself, guys. Hopefully it's in the in the description of the podcast. Hopefully. Um, 
you don't want to hear me try and spell sorry, that quickly. Who are you? Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Have we met before? Um, so you can follow me on Instagram. I am currently documenting my next writing project, which is called Iconicism. I am making like a kind of like a vlog style docu series that I'm posting to YouTube as well, all about the process and what's going on in my life. Of course, coming back from chronic illness, re-establishing myself as a creative and a human, and going out to the world again and um, rebuilding my not that my publishing company like fell apart but like you know really going into the next level with it now that I am back to good health erotica so, yeah. she's just saying erotica yes yeah. going on yeah sorry on. yeah yeah I'm going all Things in on getting erotica. erotic it's fine it's good yeah and I'm so writing it documenting too. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah and it's free on YouTube which is amazing normally you have to go to OnlyFans <laughs> for it um but yeah so like if you want to know what I'm up to definitely hit me up on Instagram and then from there you can find all my other links but of course if you want to submit go to revolutionaries but of course if you want to just like talk first you can email me or hit me up in my Instagram DMs of course come at me with actual questions instead of like open-ended like hey (laughs) because sometimes people just say like hey what's up and I'm like I'm like yeah hey (laughs) but if you if you want to if you want to talk biz like like come come with some actual questions and I'll be able to answer them um unless you just want to be friends then you can just be like Um, hey (laughs) slip into her dms uh it would help if your name was damn tune just for the record otherwise might be might be on on the waiting list um (laughs) we'll put all the links as well because I know you've got quite the tiktok following and uh, I want people to be able to find your book and, and mm. uh, the books that you've published as well. I am um, currently getting absolutely destroyed by a mosquito. So if you feel a sense mm. of urgency with yep. me trying to wrap this up, that's it. <laughs> uh, it's life or death. <laughs> it is. It truly is. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much. I think what you were doing, I think your art is incredible. I think this next book that you're going to write is, is going to change the world. I think the space that you are creating for revolutionaries and just, this concept that ideas can change. A person can change. A community can change the world. That is absolutely why I wake up every day. And so it is truly an honor to be able to work with you, be supported by you, support you, and um, be in community with you because you you are pretty pretty great at all the things. And I think I think we'll definitely do this again, but I think uh, we're going to need to do like a 10 year reunion because where you and your books and your projects and everything are going to be, uh, is going to be fucking next level. You'll be like, um, I'm sorry, who are you? Let's be real. You're going to be next to me every step of the way. I need to be surrounded by my elders. Okay. So you'll, you'll be there. It's fine. Shit. <laughs> on that note actually i probably um, yeah probably um probably claim elder term although i don't know that the elders would feel like i qualify but for you you youngins yes uh, i'll take it great okay let's bounce oh, then love well thank you so much okay 